0: This is episode 200 of the Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, The Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. This episode is part of our series on education and teaching. Well, we did it. We made it to episode 200, which means we'll probably start winding down through the rest of the year 2020 We'll still have some of our Literary Sunday episodes because I've got a few more in store for you there, but probably very few, if any, episodes left on Tuesday until we're back with our new name in year 2021. It's been such a joy doing the podcast, and thank you so much for listening with us. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I am really thrilled to welcome two new guests to the show today. I've got education historian Jack Schneider and journalist uh, Jennifer Berkshire with me on the day of the launch of their book. And their book is called A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, The Dismantling of Public Education and the Future of School. So welcome, Jack and Jennifer.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Thanks for having us. I'll introduce you. Jack is an assistant professor of education at the University of Massachusetts in Lowell, where he leads the Beyond Test Scores project. He's an award-winning scholar. His work broadly explores the influence of history, culture, and rhetoric in education policy. He's the author of four books. And he writes frequently about education in outlets like The Atlantic, The New York Times, and The Washington Post, in case you've heard of any of those. Jennifer writes about educational politics for the nation, The New Republic, The Baffler, and other publications, again, very notable outlets. She also teaches aspiring podcasters in the journalism program at Boston College and the labor studies program at U of Massachusetts at Amherst. She's a licensed public school teacher and she lives in Massachusetts, as does Jack. They also have a podcast about education policy called Have You Heard? So, congratulations, the two of you, on
2: the launch of your book. Thanks. Well, thank you. It's very exciting.
0: All right. So the book talks about sounding an alarm about public education, obviously with a wolf at the door. So what was the final straw that made you decide that now was the time to sound the alarm and write the book?
1: Well, I think for me, it was... Betsy DeVos being appointed Secretary of Education. Mm. I had not paid as close attention as Jennifer had to all of the activity at the state level, which really ended up being what the book is about. But it was DeVos that drew me to this project. And I found that I learned an incredible amount as we were working on it and actually became more frightened as we worked on it uh, and increasingly certain that my original aim was misguided. I think, you know, Jennifer maybe knew this all along and was just patiently uh, bringing me down the primrose path to a focus on state level activity to dismantle public education.
2: That was the same for me as well. I often joke to people that I have a little bit of a Betsy DeVos obsession. And after she was nominated, I headed straight to Michigan. And the story that I encountered there as I motored around the state in their sort of brutal January, bleak winter, it it went so far beyond just education policy that I really saw that there was this concerted effort going back decades to try to dismantle public education as really a way to undercover the Democratic Party.
0: Mm.
2: And so I came out of that experience feeling like we need to sound the alarm about this, that the conversation is too narrowly focused on education policy. So when Jack said, what do you think about writing a book? I It took me about five minutes to, to sign on. I see. Right.
0: Okay. So let's dig in a little bit. This is a topic that's really interesting to me when we think about education as a public good and so for the two of you, what does that mean?
1: Well, so for me, uh, I think that education has multiple kinds of value. And one of them gets talked about far more than the other in the United States. Mm. The, the private returns of education get talked about all the time, what you are going to get out of education. Mm-hmm. Uh, the talk becomes clearest when we are talking about people attending college or going to graduate school, because at that point, it's no longer taxpayer funded in the same way that K-12 is. And we hear the argument that it's an investment in your future and that essentially you are going to pay dollars now in order to get dollars further down the road. There is a very different way of thinking about the value of education, certainly for individuals in terms of the value to one's life rather than to one's bank account. But I mean the value that is returned to society in the form of social, civic, and economic returns. And we do talk a little bit about the economic returns to society, but the social and the civic are really important and often overlooked. Having a well-educated populace benefits all of us. It benefits us in our neighborhoods. It benefits us when people go to the ballot box. And it benefits us in terms of, you know, the the way that our society evolves um, economically and politically and uh, culturally, right? That we can't overlook the cultural value of living in a country where people go to school and and things happen in school like they learn that they love the violin or um, that they are talented uh, painters, right? That, that these also have tremendous value in school and not just the tested subjects of English language arts and math.
2: I'd add to that, you know, when we talk about the public good, it sounds so abstract, but I bet people are really aware of it when it comes to something like our pandemic response We really see how when there's no sense of a public good, how we suffer, right, that we can't do things like you don't want to wear a mask, fine, you don't have to because, you know, of your freedom, right? It's really hard for us to do things like effective contact tracing because everybody assumes the calls coming in over their cell phones are spam, um, and so we've sort of hypermarketized everything, eroding any concept of a public good. And now at the time when we most need to pull together and figure out how we're going to deal with this, we don't have that ability because we're all individual actors uh, functioning on the free market.
0: That's an interesting thought that right on the heels of this idea of public good in education is the idea of public health. So yeah, I think you're right. Jennifer, that's really been brought to the fore by the pandemic is these larger issues about society and, and taking care of, of each other. One of the things I really like about the book is that it it really lays out these fairly complicated discussions in really accessible language and examples. And so to dig in a little bit here, you talk about all the different forces that are unhappy with public schools during the course of the book, and then why they've tried to dismantle public education and kind of why. And so one of those arguments is parents are best suited to decide what their children should learn. So tell me what you two think about that. Do you see any problems with that?
1: <laughs> we, we paused because uh, we both have a lot to say about that. And okay. Trying to decide yeah. who was going to unload first on this <laughs> one. Um, uh-huh. So uh, private aims, most notably the effort to use education as a way of securing social and economic advantage, dominate these days. And, you know, sometimes private interests coincide with the public good, but a lot of times they don't. And libertarians would have us believe that 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 never happens, right? Because there's no such thing as society, there's only the aggregate of individuals. But that simply isn't true, right? We know we act differently when we are making decisions as a group playing a different role as a member of a whole rather than we are making, when we're making self-interested decisions playing the role of an individual. You know, Think about the role we play when we're consumers versus the role we play when we are citizens. Those are different roles. And so acquiring schooling from the mindset of a consumer is different from participating in schooling from the mindset of a citizen. An example of this could be um, school desegregation, right? If a parent is thinking only about securing privilege for his or her child, that parent may be against racially integrated schools, right, mm-hmm. why, why give other kids a chance to attend our elite school? Uh, why water down the advantage that we've got? that would be a perfectly reasonable, if completely unethical, market response Mm -hmm. as opposed to wearing a citizen's hat and thinking through what are the potential benefits to our society of having our children go to school together. And, of course, there are also private benefits that are unanticipated in something like that, right, that kids would learn how to get along with each other, that that's a benefit to an individual's child. Mm -hmm. But the mentality of a consumer who is trying to get as much elite education for a child as possible, and this, of course, doesn't describe every family, but to hoard advantage through high-status credentials, that really devalues the deeper purposes of education.
2: I think you know one of the other things we really have to think about is the role that advertising plays in all of this, and that once you basically declare that the parent is the customer, Right? In fact, I mean, that's sort of wrong off the bat. The public is the customer because the public pays for public education. But once you define the education consumer as the parent, then you basically open us up to this wild west of what we call advertising in the book. And that unlike, say, pharmaceutical ads, ads for schools are completely unregulated. They can make any claims they want about what a school offers and what it does. And if you go and visit places like I have where this view has really taken hold, it's really disturbing. You see parents and, and kids being preyed upon, right, that schools are after the dollars that follow the kids and so you'll see in a place like Detroit all sorts of ads promising things like sneakers and, and iPads oh, and just a, a lot of claims that are are highly questionable. And parents are are really at the mercy of them. And you know, we interviewed somebody a couple of weeks ago, who was once a lobbyist for the Goldwater Institute, which is a think tank in Arizona, that's been very instrumental in pushing this vision. And he said, you know, the problem is with this whole vision that parents are experts when it comes to their own kids, they know their own kids really well. But they don't tend to be experts about things like education philosophy. They don't tend to be experts on things like pet And so schools that are highly into marketing and are looking for the kids that are the cheapest to educate Mm -hmm. but produce the biggest gains for the school itself, they have an interest in selling a particular story to parents and keeping out kids that don't fit that billing.
1: And parents are particularly vulnerable to this kind of advertising because... You know, education is a different kind of good than say a sandwich, right, or a cup of coffee or uh, a pair of jeans. You don't know from first glance or after trying it on in the fitting room or your first bite if it's much better than the alternate education you could get at the school down the road or in another town. It actually takes time. And in fact, the theory that schools will improve by competing with each other hasn't really played out for a variety of reasons, including the fact that most schools are doing more or less the same thing and that a lot of what determines the quality of those schools has to do with uh, the resources that are made available to them. And if we're competing over those resources, uh, we're ensuring that there will be losers. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a very destructive process. And so not only are parents poorly situated to understand the quality of schools as consumers, it may be a moot point. Their operation in the market as consumers may end up doing far more damage than it does good for anybody.
0: You know, I think that's really an interesting commentary about parents. And I was thinking this morning about how some of the propositions on the California ballot I don't know if it's the same in Massachusetts, but we tend to get a whole bunch of propositions, basically that people pay for to put on our ballots. And they are often phrased in such a way that that I actually kind of find them pretty insulting because they assume that the voter will always vote that individual voter's best interest. So they're always trying to couch the proposition in ways that it benefits you personally. Like, this isn't necessarily good for everyone, but this will be good for you. And I was thinking, you know, if there was a proposition that came on the ballot, that I was in my self-righteous mode this morning, if there was a proposition that came on the ballot that said, hey, this proposition is really excellent for Jennifer, me, Jennifer, Jennifer Crittenden, not the other Jennifer. It was, for, If it was for the other Jennifer, I would vote for it. But I was thinking, I wouldn't vote for that. It's unfair. But, you know, it's great to have that good citizen hat on when it's these propositions, but I have to confess when it came to my children, I might not be so magnanimous. And I think that's a really good point that we, you know, as parents, we may not really be able to trust ourselves to do, to keep the overall good in mind because we're just nuts about our kids.
2: You really see this playing out in communities that have introduced a lot of choice and competition as a way to, you know, sometimes to hold on to parents, I'm thinking about a community like Denver. And so the idea is that you give parents the opportunity to shop for schools. And so what happens is that you have the parents who are the have the most already the most ability, right, become the keenest shoppers. Mm-hmm. And so they're, go, they're going on all the school tours. And, and what you end up with is a system that ends up exacerbating divides, um, because you have those parents who understandably are, you know, they, they're looking for the best fit for their student. Um, and then you have the school that is eager for a parent that is demonstrating that level of involvement. And so before you know it, you've widened a gap that you thought you were addressing. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and I, will just also add that our conversation about what a good school is is so impoverished that I'm not sure most parents in seeking an advantage for their own kids are actually securing one. Right. Uh, that you know the pursuit of uh, a high-status school with high test scores is so narrow-minded, and never mind the fact that high test scores are often simply a reflection of a school's demography mm-hmm. rather than its academic strength that if parents were saying, listen, I am competing against other parents for a school where my kid is going to be educated as a citizen and feel a strong sense of belonging and be exposed to a curriculum that is rich and broad and diverse and includes the arts and music education, and I want a diverse school so my kid learns how to get along with other people in our society, and right the list could go on and on if that's what, mm-hmm. if that's what people were saying that's a little harder to argue against but that also coincides better with this vision of education as a public good and you know i think the way around this is is to say you know it's not that hard to imagine a world in which we create schools that have the capacity to do that for every kid that pitting families against each other mm-hmm. is not necessarily the best strategy for ensuring that everybody has the opportunity to send their kids to a school that has all of the things that we want for every young person. And that I have greater confidence in our ability to collectively do that for everybody than to say, well, let's let individuals in the marketplace battle it out and see, see what happens
0: yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. that That is the fundamental problem with it. okay, so let's let's say parents aren't that great at figuring out what should be taught and uh, what schools should look like because we're because of all these problems that we've just said. So how do we balance the idea of a common education, you know, that is for the public good, that unites our citizenry? that uh, provides all the things that we would like for our society to enjoy and experience. With this specter that often gets raised, and you've talked about this a bit in the book, of indoctrination by, quote, government schools. So in an ideal system, how do you see decisions being made about what gets taught?
2: this is really, this is, I'm just going to say a few things and then let, this is Jack's uh, place as the education historian. Um, But I think, you know, people often forget that what makes the system in the US so unique is that we have no system. And so like right now, we're really seeing the downside of this, that like where I live in Massachusetts, about roughly half of the students in the state are learning remotely. And it's up to every single individual school district to figure out how to make that work. And that's working about as well as you can imagine, (laughs) right? That like you have all these, you have a tiny, District in Central Mass trying to figure out how to educate kids without broadband. Um, you have uh, big urban districts doing the same things, and so we have this this system that leaves a lot of power up to the local local authorities and frankly local residents to determine how kids are going to be educated, and that is both our strength and our absolute weakness. And Jack when so when i hear people talk about they fear the sort of role of indoctrination i think about how hard it is to get schools to do anything and i sort of chuckle at that no. but jack has a much <laughs> a much bigger picture take on that issue
1: yeah so you know we have this long history of decentralization but at the same time uh, schools are very conservative organizations, uh, not in the political sense, but in the truest meaning of that word. Um, that, as Jennifer said, it is very hard to get schools to change. And, you know, that in many ways is a weakness, but in some ways it's a strength. It means that schools are really resilient in the face of poorly designed reforms, reforms that will come and go. Schools are, uh, you know, really elastic with regard to highly politically motivated interventions, right? With it, you know, they'll bend uh, in the direction that they need to and then sort of spring back to what they have always been. Um, Mm. So that's one way of thinking about this. Another way is to think about the fact that You know, there are so many different layers of involvement that exist and that could exist with regard to the public school curriculum. So right now, the way that it works is that the federal government requires every state to have standards but doesn't mandate what those standards are. It sort of gave up on its push for the Common Core. And I'll just say... Mm. That that is an episode in its own right to look at the politics of the Common Core and the way that that a national set of national curricular standards became so vilified, despite the fact that each set of state standards looks pretty 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 similar. Common Core, (laughs) right? Okay. Um, And and then this each state has a set of curricular standards, and then each district develops its own curriculum or adopts or purchases a curriculum, and then within each school teachers decide how they're going to teach that curriculum. So one way of seeing this, if I were, you know, a a corporate Democrat, for instance, um, I would see this as a a massive problem, a huge inefficiency, right? I would bring in McKinsey, and I would say, let's streamline this. Um, But actually, you know, there's something of a strength here. And it's uh, to, to follow up on what Jennifer said, this is so American, right? Where There are all of these layers of involvement because we can't decide how we feel about national government. We like it except for when we hate it. Uh, (laughs) The same goes for state involvement. And so what we see is a real compromise here. And I think that that compromise is one of our strengths and that, Mm. you know, unlike the way our government was designed to be sort of in tension and to have those tensions be productive, I think we still see that with regard to the curriculum, that constantly fighting over the curriculum is a good thing rather Mm. than a bad thing um, because we have so many different interests. And what we ought to do is create more venues for people to have productive disagreements rather than what we have seen in the past, you know, 10 to 20 years, which is the historically open disagreements that have been overtly political in nature sometimes, we've seen those move behind closed doors and become covertly political. So I think the more that things can be transparent, the more that stakeholders can be involved, and the more that we can channel our disagreements into a productive tension that produces something that doesn't make any group particularly happy, that but that, you know, doesn't make any of us outraged and that doesn't violate any of our dignity, I I think that's a win.
0: It reminds me of the facilities guy at one of the companies that I worked at who said to me, well, everyone is mad at me, so I know I'm doing a good job. (laughs) (laughs) The book also explains the ways now that public monies are being used to fund religious schools with curricula often purchased uh, from institutions that have a Christian agenda. And often those schools also have discriminatory admission practices against homosexuals, for example. So what kept that from happening before and what's changed? And can you give us a few examples of that?
1: Most states have uh, a so-called Baby Blaine Amendment in their state constitutions named for James Blaine, who was a republican uh, representative in the 1870s who sought a uh, amendment to the federal constitution to the u.s. constitution that would have banned any public monies going to religious organizations or religious education Mm -hmm. at the time and there are conservatives who will really play this up today at the time uh, it was a nativist anti-Catholic push, driven by fears that immigrant Catholics were sending their children to Catholic schools and that this was breeding divisiveness. Over time, however, that history became lost. So the Blaine Amendment lost nationally, and then states took it up on their own. As the history faded into the background, as Catholics became just another group, that had assimilated uh, into the U.S., and particularly white Catholics, what we see is that that became less about nativism and less about anti-Catholicism and more about a separation between church and state that is a kind of popular understanding that Americans now have and buy into, Mm
2: -hmm. that
1: this separation is uh, very tenuous and it's kept in place by things like these state Blaine amendments that have been eroded very intentionally by the right over time. And again their arguments for these uh, erosions will often claim, you know, that they are anti-catholic. There's nothing particularly mm. anti-catholic about them today. Mm. Though, you know, I think everybody would talk openly about their origins 150 years ago. Um, I see. But a- as they've been eroded, what we've seen is that something that Americans today are not particularly in favor of, which is public dollars flowing to private religious education, uh, Mm -hmm. is becoming normalized.
2: So we mentioned in the book that there was this terrific series in Florida called Schools Without Rules. And as I read that, you know, my eyes just sort of, you know, popped because they chronicle what the kids are actually learning. And it turns out that a number of these schools that take public funds in Florida, um, rely on these kind of canned curriculum that are provided by these religious institutions. And, you know, they refer to things like kids learning that dinosaurs and man, you know, walk the earth at the same time, that, you know, a very sunny view of slavery um, and a very negative view of programs like Social Security. And I thought, well, this, you know, how can this be true? And so I sent away for some of the some examples of the curriculum and, and it was really the case. Oh wow. Right. And so that's why they called it schools without rules. That that messy process of deciding what kids get taught that we were just talking about. Moving funds into basically going you know, behind the screen where the public can no longer see how the money is being spent. And that's very much by design in a place like Florida, that the state has no oversight at all. And so, Jennifer, if you happen to be sending your child to one of these schools and she came home and and you saw that she was learning that man and dinosaurs walk the earth at the same time. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to complain to somebody about that, there would no longer be any sort of state entity for you to complain to, even though it's public money, right? You could, you know, call the school, but really the only thing you could do would be to, quote, vote with your feet and leave, right? And so what we see is that this very old cause Funding religious education with public money that Americans have never been keen on. And that's the reason why we don't do it. Anytime it comes up for a vote, including most recently in Arizona a couple of years ago, people vote it down. They don't like that idea. They don't like the, the idea that kids would be learning you know, one religion, mm-hmm. um, whether it's Sharia law or Catholicism, they don't like that. And they especially don't like the fact that schools would would take public money and then discriminate with that money. That makes them very uncomfortable. And so when you see that arise as an issue in states like Florida, it really provokes a strong public backlash. And as we see these programs continue to grow and expand, you're going to see a lot more of that.
1: And it isn't simply that the backers of these efforts are in favor of a religious education because For the most part, what they are in favor of is a Protestant Christian education, Mm -hmm. but that is not the only kind of religious education that would be opened up to public dollars here. And so the question then becomes, well, why would somebody who identifies as a, a libertarian conservative who has been pushing for tax cuts, who is interested in reducing the footprint of government, what is that person? get out of this because we do see people like the Cokes, for instance, pushing for this kind of legislative change, this kind of policy change. And the answer is that every win for private religious education, even mm-hmm. if it's for a religious education that you know the Cokes would never support for their own children, um, mm-hmm. I, I shouldn't continue referring to them in the plural <laughs> now that there's only one Coke but it's a win not just for private religious education, but it's a loss for public education, right? Because Mm -hmm. as students are drained out of traditional public schools and as dollars are drained out of traditional public schools, which is often the case without losing students, right? Because dollars can then, follow the families that never sent their kids to public schools in the first place, that were always sending their children to private religious schools. They suddenly can just pull those tax dollars out of the public system and claim them essentially as reimbursement for the private tuition that they were paying already, that this does damage to a system that a lot of people don't believe in, that they would like to see go away, right? That public education in the United States is a half trillion dollar annual cost, a cost borne by American taxpayers. And most Americans tend to think it's worth it, even those of us who don't send our kids to public schools and those of us who don't have children. I have a child, I send her to public school, I know a lot of people who don't have children who happily pay their local property taxes, Mm -hmm. uh, their state taxes, their federal taxes, although federal dollars only about 9% of funding for public education comes from federal dollars. They do it because they believe that every person in this country should have access to a high quality education. And that simply is not a consistent belief across the board. And what we're seeing is the erosion of these structures that are in place to ensure that we have a system that is viable financially and politically for the long run.
0: I think that's an important point. I'm going to try and say it in my own words, and you can tell me if I get it right or not. The forces in play often that are in favor of public monies going to religious schools are not necessarily motivated by religious beliefs, but it's a way of enfeebling the system that we have today for public education. And I had never thought of it that way. I think that's a really important point because there are a lot of forces working against public education right now. And I think we need to recognize the magnitude of the problem when you have public monies going to religious schools. So thanks for clarifying that. Did I restate it okay?
2: Perfect. Very well done.
0: Okay. There's a huge pot of money that can be tapped for education. So other people are motivated to get in on the game for less ideological reasons and more financial reasons. And what examples did you uncover that you think represent kind of cautionary tales about turning that money over to the phrase that you all use in the book, edupreneurs?
2: So ironically, I mean, when we wrote the book, we had no idea, of course, that a pandemic was coming. We had no idea that the country would basically pivot, you know, on a dime and have to go to remote schooling. But it's really in the virtual landscape that you see the most outrageous efforts to sort of mine profit. Mm -hmm. And part of that is because it costs so much less to teach students remotely. You can get rid of all the things that that require so much investment. You don't need brick-and-mortar schools. Mm-hmm. You don't need teachers, right? Labor is the single biggest, that's where all the money goes. And so if you can somehow, if you can have one teacher teaching an online class of 300, think how much money you've saved. The problem is that if you are focused on your bottom line, at the you know at the exclusion of things like providing a quality education you end up in a situation like we saw in Ohio where these virtual schools really start to balloon and they prey on The parents who know the least in their advertising, um, that was something that really just kind of shocked and appalled me, that as people became aware that this was really pretty shoddy stuff that was being offered, you saw affluent parents quickly begin to drift away, right? They realized that this was not a good fit for them. Um, But then the same level of advertising is still out there and the parents who, who end up falling for it are the parents who have the fewest resources right. and whose kids often have the most needs. And so the guy who ran ECOT, which was the big virtual school in Ohio, he ended up making a killing. But the kids who, who attended it, who you know logged on or mostly didn't log on from their own homes, they were sort of appallingly served. The graduation rates were abysmal and it took years and years to expose that because the school had really become A funder of Ohio's Republican Party, and so I think that opened our our eyes to the kind of menace. Like what happens when there's nobody watching the store, but also at a time now when we're we're seeing even as parents kind of you know are are just they hate online education. You can see people who think it's a way to make a buck, Mm -hmm. kind of lighting up.
1: And it isn't simply that state level legislators sometimes have a financial incentive in allowing for these kinds of school alternatives, whether it be virtual schools or some sort of educational product that is suddenly available for purchase with public dollars. It's not just that in states like Arizona, journalists have found incredible cases of self-dealing among legislators. It's also because uh, as we talked about in the case of religious schools, that if your aim is to pull apart public education, mm-hmm. then any, any assault on public schools is worth investing in. So even if you end up supporting a religious school that is teaching uh, the spiritual practices, I'm not sure that's an appropriate phrase, of Scientology, Right? an L. Ron Hubbard-inspired curriculum, you may find that anathema, but that is going to undermine public education. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it's okay. And the same goes for financial abuse. That in states like Arizona, they have created uh, what they call the education debit card, where public taxpayer dollars are loaded onto a debit card and given to parents ostensibly for the purpose of paying for school. But they have cut out any ability to monitor how those funds are spent, which Mm -hmm. seems like, uh, you know, just a completely ludicrous idea, given that people could take those (laughs) debit cards and go buy iPads with them or uh, put a down payment on a car if Mm -hmm. there's no way to regulate the spending. And, of course, that's by design because... They don't actually care where you spend the money as long as you're pulling it out of the public schools. And so while some of this may sound conspiracy-minded, right, that there's there are people out there who are trying to take public schools away from Americans, there's just too much evidence that it's true, right? Because the policy landscape has been altered in a manner that otherwise doesn't make any sense, right? There aren't people who just are in favor of financial abuse for the sake of financial abuse. There aren't people who are you know, clamoring to teach that man and dinosaur walked together, not on any large scale. But there are organizations, well-funded organizations, whose sole purpose is to reduce taxpayer expenditures, to limit government and the size of government, And to, quote unquote, empower individuals, which usually just means ensuring that oligarchs and aristocrats have the influence that they want to have.
0: Again, I think that's a really important takeaway from this episode, is this idea of undermining public education is a win, regardless of how you go about it. And that, I mean, it sounds like from the stories you're telling, the parents are often pawns in that, right? We're appealing to parents, sometimes you know, with money, basically, to to give them opportunities to spend that money that would have been tax money going to public schools in some other way for their children, for themselves, or some other way.
1: And it's worth noting, and this came up in what Jennifer was saying, that the people most harmed here will be the historically underserved, right? Right. That uh, wealthy families, no matter what happens to public schools, wealthy families Families where parents are highly educated, racially privileged families, they will continue to send their kids to things that look like schools and mm-hmm. that operate like schools and where teachers, uh, trained teachers, are running the school day and the, the schooling looks more or less what we know uh, schooling to be. But for less privileged populations, that's where we really see the threat of school-like Practices, and I I don't use the phrase school because, uh, in the vision that the forces of dismantling have in mind, there won't be school buildings for most kids because those are expensive, and there won't be teachers, right? That teaching will be gig work. Jennifer said that most expenditures in public education go for personnel. It's 80%, right? You get rid of teachers. If you were able to, to zero out that column in your spreadsheet, that's 80% of the cost that you've just eliminated. Now, you can't reduce it to zero uh, unless you find a perfect, piece of technology, which certainly there are people out there trying to create a piece of technology <laughs> right. that you can sit kids <laughs> in front of, right? Instructorless education all day long. Again, the most advantaged would never settle for that for their own kids. No. But what we're talking about is potentially devastating consequences for the least advantaged, ensuring that the slim chances people have at social and economic mobility today are reduced to zero.
0: Well, speaking of being shocked now that I'm getting wound up here on my own podcast, I was really surprised when you wrote in your book about the proposal to merge the Department of Education with the Department of Labor, like no holds barred, right? Let's just go straight to the economic argument that really the point of educating our citizenry is so that they become good workers, right? And it will keep them off unemployment. And so, you know, if if you're going to take that view, which sounds really kind of dystopian to me, there's really no room for education more than just a trade education, right? But then I started thinking, okay, hold on here. (laughs) What, you know, how should we be thinking about who gets to decide what does represent a good American public education?
2: Well, that proposal to merge the Department of Labor and the Department of Education, it didn't really go anywhere. And it's kind of unfair to heap all the blame on the Trump people and the DeVos people, because really what happened was that going back 30 years we really put all of our eggs in the education basket. And what I mean by that is that in other countries, you and we're seeing this play out now during the pandemic in a big way, they have robust social welfare programs, right? It's not just the school that we rely on to do things like care for the kids, feed the kids, um, provide whatever social services they need, We went big on education and the idea is that that's the ladder, right? That you go to school and then you go to college. And as I saw somebody quoted recently, you know, learning is the new pension, right? We're not going to have things like unions anymore. Instead, it's all on you. And so to a certain extent it wasn't really necessary to merge the Department of Labor and the Department of of Education because for all, you know, they they sort of are already merged. That We view education as the thing. It's all we have Um, and understandably that's why people care about it so much but it's also that's the reason why people are inevitably so disappointed. It can't possibly do all of those things and especially as opportunity is increasingly rationed. I think that overemphasis on education is a huge part of the kind of division mm-hmm. that we have today. That, you know, when you hear people talking about the fact that Trump speaks to them and represents them because they're not educated, that as a country, we've been telling those people that basically you're a loser and the fact that things haven't worked out for you is your fault. If you had just tried harder in school and been able to go to college, it would have worked out better for you. And I think, like, that's the real kind of poisonous aspect of putting all of our economic eggs in that education basket.
1: There's also something really symbolic there that is worth thinking about, right? That DeVos, as in so many cases, was trying to legitimize an extreme position that is, you know, not hers in that she generated it, but hers in that she believes the same things that, you know, people at the Heartland Institute or the Mackinac Center, right, these state-level organizations, the Goldwater Institute, or national their national counterparts, right, the Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute, that she was working to use the bully pulpit, even if she knew she'd lose on some of these policy issues, to normalize mm-hmm. these ideas. And one of these ideas is that we should be focused, as taxpayers, on return on investment that they are our dollars and we ought to be getting something for them and that what we get ought to be measurable in dollars, not measurable in, you know, happiness or, you know, civic outcomes or cultural products. You know, the people who are intent on dismantling public education are not interested in, you know, like a great dance repertoire being produced (laughs) by public education. What they want to know is what's, what's in it for me? Uh, the Mm -hmm. taxpayer? What am I getting from my investment? And they will very plainly state that for people who can afford an education for their own kids, they ought to be entitled to get whatever they want, buy whatever they want for their own kids in the marketplace using their own private dollars.
0: Mm -hmm. Violin lessons, etc. Sure,
1: absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, a classical curriculum. Mm -hmm. And for everybody else, you'll get charity education. And charity education will look like whatever the basics you need are to stay off the dole and stay out of prison uh, because those things will cost us more, right? That those are also taxpayer expenditures. So we want to keep you out of jail and we want to keep you off welfare, but that's all that we're willing to invest in you. Uh, And so absolutely, education would be about basic literacy, basic numeracy, and perhaps some trade training uh, so that, you know, you can hold down a steady job outside of, you know, data entry or uh, service work.
0: So, Jack and Jennifer, let's assume that we don't want that, that just rich (laughs) people get violin lessons (laughs) and that we and that everybody else gets charity How should we be thinking, though, about, I mean, I'm thinking about what Jack said at the beginning about having a fairly transparent process about what gets taught and making it part of a large discussion where many people get to weigh in about what they think should be included. I'm not going to use the word core curriculum, but, you know, what should be included in a basic education. Is that the right answer for for how we figure out what should be included, how far, how much money we want to spend on educating people. I mean, how, what's the right framework to think about that question?
1: I'll jump in first since I'm so predictable and Jennifer knows what I'm going to say. But I think the <laughs> very first thing that we need is a national conversation about what the purpose of school is.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: A rich and nuanced conversation which has been absent for the past several decades. Uh, As I said earlier, our conversation about school quality is so impoverished, right? Mm. That a good school is a school with high test scores. Our understanding of what education is good for for our own kids is so impoverished, right? That it's gonna help my kid get into a selective college or university. Mm -hmm. Um, Education is about so much more than that right? For us individually, uh, for those of us who send our kids to public schools, right? Education is about learning how to be in the world and learning how to be in a highly diverse democracy. It's about discovering your talents and abilities. It's about, you know, learning academic content and basic academic skills, but it's also about soft skills. It's also about critical thinking. It's, it's about so many things. And families intuitively understand this because as soon as you ask them, but what do you actually want for your kid? Mm-hmm. What do you actually hope this school does, right? Then we get these more interesting responses from people. But we have been so primed to think only about these kind of consumer mentality, mm-hmm. uh, shopping orientations, about what I can get for my kid that will enable her to get ahead. And as a nation, we need to think beyond simple economic returns and start thinking about all of the good that public education has done for the United States over the past 250 years. It is a tremendous accomplishment uh, that we now, today, afford Every young person in this country, 13 years of publicly funded education. And for the most part, our schools do a pretty good job of it. We have horrible inequality in this country, and our schools can't even that out. Although they do absolutely do some good in that regard, a lot of good. (laughs) But we often blame the schools for the things that they can't control, and we undervalue them for the things they actually do.
2: I know this do, isn't really answering your question, Jennifer, but when I I think about, I've spent a lot of time traveling to rural places to visit schools, and I'm always just blown away that you can go to these places that are the, the reddest parts of Wisconsin, where you know 80% of people in a county voted for Trump. And at the same time, they voted to raise taxes on themselves in order to invest in their local school and when you look at the things that they want to add to their school it's not just this kind of like it's not bare bones career and technical education mm. it's an art studio it's it's mm. the you know it's a a, a maker space And, you know, you go in these schools and it's just, it's so impressive. And to me, that's very reassuring, Mm -hmm. you know, that people in these communities can't wait to show you their schools. And it tells me that no matter how divided we are and the divide, our rural urban divide right now is intense, but people in these places want the same things. You know, they want their their kids to have every opportunity through the school as well. So it tells me that there's some, that conversation that Jack is talking about is one that we could really benefit from, not just as far as articulating that bigger vision of what education is, but in reminding us that we actually share a lot Mm -hmm. and that the divide is between the people who feel like, a well-rounded education is too expensive. It's too much of a burden on them, and they would rather lower the expectations of everyone. And, you know, let's let's focus on, on that divide. And if you go to these, when you go to these places, um, there's a really intense debate about higher ed playing out as well, um, that as austerity uh, takes hold in these states, you know, the first thing that they want to do is cut the state college systems. And they want to cut all the, you know, the English program and the romance languages and they want to cut those out of the out of these um, small colleges, and what you see is that people rise up in response to that. They, they don't feel like just because they live in a rural area that their kids should be entitled to any less of an education, whether it's K-12 or higher ed, and I, I find that encouraging.
0: It's an interesting thought that one of the first moves we could make or one of the first rocks we could put in the... In the road back to unity is our children, because that's really been my experience also. When you become active in the schools and associate with the other parents, that's when you discover how much you have in common, right? That we we really are often very united in our thoughts about our children. I'm feeling very patriotic at the moment. <laughs> so uh, we're almost out of time here but I do want to sneak in this one question obviously things are going to be very different starting in 2021 uh, with a new president presumably a new secretary of education and also as a professor as the first lady so do you have any predictions for us about what you think might change
2: well, the first thing that I hope changes is that Biden is able to play the kind of leadership role in helping both parents and schools navigate the just the disaster that's been schooling in the pandemic. Um, the like the lack of leadership and frankly the level of obstruction by the current occupant of the Department of Education has just been astonishing. You know, the idea that they won't they make a point of not tracking COVID outbreaks at the state level or at any level, right? And so so that, they don't see that as their job. And so if he were able to play a helpful role in helping schools open safely, that would be a a huge thing. So just, you know, like that bully pulpit role that is so important. And frankly, I, you know, I'm surprised at how enthusiastic I am um, about Dr. Jill Biden as well. That was not something that I had expected. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've, uh, I got kind of burned out during the election. I really didn't want to hear any more about it. And I don't know whether it's whether we have the same initials, or that I also have four degrees. But I, I'm enthusiastic about the role that she could play. I'm sure Jack has, Jack has many thoughts to add. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Not many thoughts, but oh, as Jennifer and I have talked about before on our podcast, the past several decades have been characterized by a treaty between conservatives and neoliberals. And the terms of that treaty were that the right would put aside religion in education and vouchers. And, you know, any wholesale privatization efforts and the left would put aside support for teachers and their unions, a push for desegregation and a push for better and more equitable funding. The terms of the treaty also meant this is an unwritten treaty, of course, you're not going to find it at Mm -hmm. the Library of Congress uh, (laughs) that each side would work together around these essentially neoliberal reforms right Um, performance management in the form of test-based accountability and choice controlled choice essentially in the form of charter schools right that um, the market logic was something both sides bought into but the agreement was that uh, it wouldn't be privatized in nature that it would happen in a public form because charter schools are public schools the treaty was broken by DeVos and People were outraged by it, but I think that creates an opportunity for the Biden administration because they are no longer beholden to the classic education policies that we've seen uh, from Democrats at the federal level over the past few decades. Biden doesn't need to push for Uh, standards and accountability testing. He doesn't need to continue to support charters uh, as Barack Obama did when Joe Biden was vice president. And I would be in favor of seeing Biden restore those three policy efforts that got shelved for the past several decades on the left. Support for teachers and professionalism, support for any policy effort that would integrate our schools, both racially and economically, and uh, support for fairer and more equitable funding, because it's not simply that we see funding disparities from place to place. It's that in those disparities, students who attend schools with less money on average are the students who need it the most.
0: All right. It's it's an opening for an opportunity, it sounds like. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I just love talking to you both. And before I let you go, is there anything you want to share with the audience where they could follow your work, buy the book, or really anything you'd like for them to know?
2: I want to throw in one last sort of plug for the book. I feel like in recent years, people have really woken up to the fact that there is a small group of enormously wealthy people in this country who exert a lot of influence Mm -hmm. over our politics and our policies. And it has to do with, with things like Citizens United and the Supreme Court. There's been some fantastic reporting by people like Jane Mayer and Nancy McLean. But so often, education sort of gets lost in that conversation. And I think what Jack and I are saying is that you know in every state education is is up near the very top when it comes to you know like the the big budget items and so that you know you have to be paying attention to efforts that are playing out at the at the state level and what we really tried to do was to make that story come alive in a way that's as- accessible and hopefully non conspiratorial and that's why we're so happy that that you read the book Jennifer and that you liked it
1: <laughs> and i'll just tell listeners to your show that if they want to hear more more of us that we've got our own podcast have you heard and we've now aired 100 episodes of it. Uh, so there's quite a back catalog if people want to start in the early days. But you don't need to. This is, um, this is not serial. You're not going to you know, end <laughs> up at the spoiler ending without knowing the backstory here. Our show, Have You Heard, is available wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Great. Well, congratulations on the podcast and the book. And thank you so much for the work that you do and for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having us, Jennifer.
0: Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes, airing on Tuesday and Friday, and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at DiscreetGuide.com. D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care, and let's talk again soon.